greetings from the treehouse, Dave. Oh, good for you. Good for you. So, yeah, Soren and I switched rooms. So now mm-hmm. he is downstairs uh, and I am upstairs. We realized that we had given an eight-month-old uh, the best view in the entire house. Um, and he's eight months old and he doesn't pay rent. So um, I switched up with him. And uh, now I'm looking out over this beautiful skyline of Austin, Texas. Oh, nice. Yeah. So anyway, That's how are you great. doing? Good, good. I got uh, two additional guinea pigs and a kitten for like the next week or so. The gift that keeps on giving. Yep, yep. So it's basically uh, uh, Lauren's guinea pig, uh, Fibonacci, uh, her two sisters are are spending Thanksgiving with us. Um, So we have some company for Thanksgiving Um, (laughs) as as her as their um, uh, owners are on vacation. And uh, we're also um, fostering a uh, a rescue kitten so somebody i guess was like driving down the street threw a kitten out the window of their car oh, and um yeah yeah so we're um we're uh, taking care of uh, this little kitten it's a, adorable his name's maxwell and um i'm <laughs> hey, allergic Dave, to cats i yeah. was gonna say i thought you were allergic mm-hmm. to cats yes i am so are you wearing a faraday suit right now <laughs> yeah a hazmat suit um yeah um no no it's i've just I, I just she uh, that the kitten is in our one in Lauren's bathroom, and uh, whenever I go in to visit, I'll I'll just thoroughly wash my hands afterwards. And so far, I'm okay. Um, it's just uh, just got to be very careful. Otherwise, my eyes will get all scratchy and swelled up. But uh, but yeah, the, the, he's he's pretty adorable. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, so I've got a, I've got a recommendation uh, for uh, for audiovisual entertainment this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I Netflix was really insistent that I watch uh, Peaky Blinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a period gangster show about uh, a post World War One gang in Birmingham, England, um, mm-hmm. and it is wonderful. I'm I'm really enjoying it very much, and it, it's a little bit like a watered down Deadwood with an English accent. Uh, so mm-hmm. so that's nice. Um, anyway, I, I recommend, uh, I can strongly recommend it. Um, how about you? You got any, got any recommendations? Well, I, I just actually, I finished it, um, both seasons. I watched the first season a couple months ago and then I watched this season it's, and I really enjoyed it. it. It picks up towards the end of season one. Um, and it, what was funny is that I had to, the, the Birmingham accents were so thick. I had to put on closed captioning to understand what they're saying. <laughs> so I, I felt real like like my parents or, or like my grandparents or something that, you know, it's like, ah, I can't understand. Um, but, uh, but once it's like, I sort of got the hang of it. It's sort of like listening to something at two X. It, it's like, once you adapt to it, you could turn the closed captioning off and then you follow it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah. And, and I, uh, one other thing that I, I don't know why I just figured this out, but, uh, I've been doing a search folder. Uh, so, you know, we use Zimbra internally and I, I created a search folder, uh, for, is colon unread and it's actually been pretty good for me um because inst- because right now i have like i internally I, I subscribe to i don't know 50 75 email lists and then like each email list may have one or two email messages in it and then it's like once or twice a day i basically do the the email list whack-a-mole of, of going through each folder clicking on it looking at it and everything mm-hmm. but if you do a search for is colon unread it basically gives you all of the unread messages throughout your your um uh, mail system 
And then I create a search folder for it. So I just click on that folder. It does a search. And then and so I could hose that out like in a matter of seconds instead of taking like minutes to, to go through all like 50 folders. Oh, nice. Oh, so you use a you use a folder system. Uh, you don't have yes. everything in, in one inbox. No, no, no. Oh, OK. I feel no. like I, I feel like I'm the only person who does that. I don't I, I don't I don't sort mail at all or I don't filter mail at all. I just I have one inbox and that's everything that I need to process. And everything is either in the inbox in my arc one archive folder, uh, which I have yeah. a hotkey for, uh, or I delete it. And that's it. Hmm. Um, okay. I find it I find it made me a lot faster because I don't have to spend any time figuring out where stuff is like like that. Right. Um, well, yeah, for me, I prioritize it where it's like I only look at the email list folders like once or twice a day and mm -hmm. and then because otherwise every time we get like we, you know we call it memo list um you know there's a lot of noise on that and i just don't want that generating uh, an interrupt that would be like a significantly lower priority than somebody directly emailing me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay all right fair enough fair enough yeah uh all right well what do you say what do we what do we got on the show this week Yep. So we're talking about uh, mobile phone surveillance that you pay for. Oh, that sounds um, nice. Peer-to-peer mm -hmm. uh, -peer Dropbox replacements mm -hmm. and uh, the many faces of a lock-in. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Dave, if uh, folks want to link to uh, this Peaky Blinders, which we're which we're talking about, where what website should they visit? They want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Nice. Uh, and also on that dgshow.org, you'll, you'll find, in addition to the show notes, you'll find the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, which includes this, uh, this budgie who is now imitating uh, R2-D2. Um, and, uh, and, a, and a kind of in-browser simulation of what seems like leaving the Logan Airport at night. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's done in 1,023 bytes of JavaScript. Wow. Really impressive. It looks like a video game I played on the Atari yeah. uh, like a long, 20, 30 years ago, yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really well done. It's really well done. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, Dave, when I say super cookie, what, 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 what does that mean? Yeah. So, super cookies, um, I don't know if there's an official definition for what it is, uh, according to Merriam-Webster. But it's we talked about this a little bit last episode where you have these cookies that you just can't delete off your system because they never exist on your system. And that's where like AT&T and Verizon would, in your HTTP stream, would add stuff to the request uh, to be able to track you for um, to give you relevant ads in, in exchange. Right. And, uh, and so since they're added in the stream, you, they're not stored on your system and you can't delete them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when we talked about this last, uh, we talked about ways of mitigating it and obviously using HTTPS, right? Using TLS connections mm -hmm. or SSL mm -hmm. connections uh, can help you out. Um, but it turns out that that's not the only thing that they'll inject into your stream. A lot of people uh, have, had the, have had the unpleasant experience of having uh, your mobile carrier inject ads into your web pages. Nice. Yeah. Um, and in fact, they have a whole term for this. It's called middleboxing. Um, oh. And uh, we've got a we've got a link in the in the show notes to a document from basically the mobile phone carrier industry association uh, talking about the threat that uh, that encrypted web traffic uh, has to their business model. Hmm. So I can play them the tiniest possible violin. Um, it, 
so th- th- this is incredibly frustrating. Like we spend a lot of time, you and I, Dave, talking about uh, sharing your data with third parties, right? Worried about what mm-hmm. Google is doing, what Dropbox is doing. But that is a kind of an end-to-end relationship under which you have some kind of control over the terms you're handing under which you're handing over your data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you say like, I like the terms and conditions, or I haven't read the terms and conditions, or I don't like the terms and conditions, and you can make a relatively informed choice about how your data is being. Uh, being mm-hmm. used, but now add in the pro- prospect of your mobile carrier or even your cable company, because I'm sure they're doing the same thing, um, mm-hmm. and they're kind of injecting stuff into your stream. And sure, it's ads right now, which seems innocuous. Uh, but mm-hmm. what else? How else are they manipulating your stream? Right? It seems pretty obnoxious. Um, yep. Anyway, so th- so this document from the uh, from the Mobile Industry Association um, is. Uh, is instructive. Um, so they say the, they, they refer to these middle boxes, right? Which is the box that sits in between the client and the server. So, uh, man in the middle? Man in the middle. way to describe it? That's okay. right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, they say, these middle boxes may be impacted by encryption as their ability to modify transport or application layer protocols or modify content itself becomes more difficult. Mm-hmm. The effectiveness of these middle boxes directly impacts carrier ability to optimize and monetize their network traffic. Uh, as if us cutting them a check every month was not enough. Uh, they they see they seem to need uh, they seem to need to uh, inject extra data into our connections in order to uh, in order to make their money, um, which I find just obnoxious. Um, yeah, it's funny as this thing this kind of thing exercises me even more than like the net neutrality argument. Um, mm-hmm. Just just this idea that they can arbitrarily manipulate my data because uh, it does feel like my data. Um, yeah, it really. Uh, yeah, it just steams me up. Um, so the answer, of course, Dave, is peer-to-peer networks, peer-to-peer data. Um, and so that leads us to the next uh, the next topic of discussion, uh, which is these like peer-to-peer Dropbox replacements, uh, which yep. kind of post-Snowden seem to have gotten a lot more traction. Um, we've talked about BitTorrent Sync uh, in the past. So that uses mm-hmm. the BitTorrent protocol uh, to share data between yourself and your friends. Um, uh, there seem to be some like some moderate uh, light to moderate concerns with it um just because it may not be quite as secure as as you'd like it to be um Mm -hmm. so there's a whole article analyzing like whether BitTorrent sync is better than the cloud for uh for trusting your personal data so don't encourage folks to check that out but you had some other alternatives dave that you want to talk about yeah yeah so well one of the things with with BitTorrent sync is it oh that sounds pretty cool it's BitTorrent, and there's all kind of open source BitTorrent clients and everything so you would think that BitTorrent Sync would be open source, and the protocol would be open, so you could analyze it and everything. And and none of that is true. Um, so BitTorrent Sync is closed source. The protocol is uh, proprietary, and it changes. And there are a lot of people, very much like how the Samba folks tried to reverse engineer how um, the the Windows uh, file service works. Um, uh, you know, they they're trying to reverse engineer it. Whereas there's uh, one entity that uh, it's called SyncThing.net, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes. But um, it's you could almost think of it as a open source um, BitTorrent Sync replacement, uh, which I like. Uh, I haven't tried it yet myself, but in theory, I like this approach better than BitTorrent Sync because it's open source. People could look at it, you know, they could they could fix the holes in it. Um, they you know they could tighten it up. Whereas with BitTorrent Sync, um, the only people that could see the and evaluate the security thoroughly is are the BitTorrent people, um, and and if and especially with those guys being a startup, um, a lot of times you know 
features take priority over uh, features and usability and growing their user base takes precedence over security and and um, and I'm not and so you know who knows um, but I, I like SyncThing.net in in concept and hopefully that works out I I probably wouldn't use it right away uh, until you know there's more of a critical mass and uh, more people try it out and and find you know because with anything that's new when you're doing encryption. Um, there's going to be security vulnerabilities in it, and so, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about that. So the only bummer about sync thing is the notion uh, is that the notion that you need to actually run a server in your house in order to operate it. Um, I'm an old man, Dave, and my eyesight is yeah. going, and my patience for running my own server is diminishing quickly. Um, like I really, I can barely keep my laptop up to date. I really don't need another appliance to be worrying about. Um, so that's why I was intrigued by this, this other tool, which is closed source. And we've mentioned on the show before, but now they seem to have uh, gotten another round of funding or something. And they, they seem to have reinvigorated themselves, uh, transporter. Um, and so this is a, this is an appliance. It's a box, uh, that you plug in, uh, and you connect to your Wi-Fi. And then you give another transporter to a friend. Uh, so, mm-hmm. for instance, you and I would uh, would share a transporter. Uh, you plug mm-hmm. your hard drive into it, and then the two of us would be able to uh, basically run our own Dropbox service, and each of us would be backing up the other's data, um, all mm-hmm. encrypted and, and locked up. Um, so it's, it's kind of like distributed, peer-to-peer, encrypted uh, Dropbox service. Um, yeah. But, you know, everything is kind of like physically under your control, which is really appealing to me. I really am... I'm intrigued well, by it. Uh, well, actually, I think sync thing doesn't require a server. The way the way I've read oh. the getting started, yeah, it's it's just basically you need two systems to talk to to sync with. So like oh, you install it, I see. yeah. So like I would install it on my rel system and then select a folder that I want to share, and then um, and then I could install the sync thing on a Raspberry Pi, I guess, or 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 your system or whatever and then what we could do just like BitTorrent sync is that you share the the hash and you log in and it uses um uh i believe it's rsa encryption uh to be able to sync the data back and forth so it's it's not like i totally agree with you like something like own cloud um Mm -hmm. where i need to have a server up and running and everybody talks to the own cloud server and i gotta worry about well and I, i actually put some thought into this of like okay if i do own cloud on a raspberry pi is that you know? Do, do I then need to start rating disks and and it's like yeah, and then I'm exactly. thinking about low power. <laughs> do I need to? What if I rated a bunch of thumb drives together? Because thumb drives <laughs> are getting pretty big with capacity, um, yeah. like 128 gig. I could I could rate them pretty easily. And I'm like wondering, is that crazy or is that a good idea? And I I'm right. not sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, see, the, so the reason why I mentioned the server, another reason why you would need a kind of a server is I know that for myself, I got in Dropbox what they gave me, very generously gave me what two terabytes of uh, free space, and I've uh, done, you know, even one of these episodes that we're doing uh, usually weighs in at about a gig, um, you know, before it's oh, really? all all said and done. Oh yeah, yeah. And so what I I make uh, plenty of use of Dropbox selective sync. Um, so I don't mm-hmm. have my whole Dropbox folder on my laptop. Um, I've only got a uh, subset of the folders and I rely okay. on the fact that Dropbox is archiving, a you know, a certain portion of them. Um, and so I, I think I would still need kind of a, some other device that would be the holder of the superset. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't want to have to, I don't want to have 
first of all, for, for disk space reasons, but also for security reasons, I don't want to be carrying around a bunch of extraneous data on my laptop, right? Um, mm -hmm. That's just, you know, that's like one more thing that can go wrong. So, yeah, it's tricky. You know, it's funny you're talking about own cloud. I was looking at that for uh, photo management, which is still a uh, which is still a sore point for me. Um, my photos mm -hmm. are still a mess, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I had the same problem. I was like, I, you know, you install it sounds easy, like you can install own cloud um, even on OpenShift, right? I mean, it sounds like yep. a relatively simple problem to solve, but um, you think through think think a couple steps further down, and now suddenly you're yak shaving, right? Um, mm -hmm. or, yeah, so. Anyway, we'll leave that as an as an open loop. Um, yeah. Did uh, Did you see the uh, speaking of encryption? Did you see the announcement from uh, EFF uh, and uh, and that kind of consortium about the Let's mm -hmm. Encrypt thing? Yeah, that's exciting. Super cool, super cool. Um, so when is it coming? Do you know? Summer of twenty fifteen. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and so what does it do? Uh, so it's they've somehow uh, I, I don't understand all the mechanics of it, but they've basically made it free and as easy as possible to enable TLS on your web server. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, which is awesome. Uh, it's it's literally it's like four lines of code, and uh, and you get yourself a cert. Um, anybody who's tried to create an SSL certificate in the past is like it is a mind-bogglingly complicated process. It's mm -hmm. really annoying. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, but EFF got together with, I guess Google is one of them and, uh, there's a couple other folks, uh, to, uh, to make it to really as dead simple, um, as you could, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. and, uh, I'm really excited to use it. I'm, especially with the problems with Cloudflare, I wonder if, uh, this is not only easier, uh, but also, mm -hmm. uh, more kind of compatible with the older browsers. Um, yep. SNI certificates really screw with kind of older HTTP implementations. Um, so mm -hmm. like when I moved over to Cloudflare, like it broke the podcast feed for a while, stuff like that. Um, I wonder if this will, uh, this will, uh, make things a little bit easier for me. Yeah. Well, is the reason why you're using Cloudflare is just for no cost TLS or, or yeah, are there other yeah. value added things that... You get out. Yeah, so it's no. Uh, there, there, you know, there are additional services that come out of Cloudflare, like they'll protect you against DDoS attacks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they'll do a little like early warning, like, "Hey, all your websites are getting hit." Um, they'll, you know, kind of automatically block uh, nefarious IP addresses and stuff like that. And part of the service is, since Cloudflare is monitoring like millions of websites, they can see mm -hmm. trends that you couldn't oh, if you were right. just looking at your own traffic. And so they can say, oh, this IP address is, you know, spamming all these people. Let me go shut them down for all of our, all of our customers. So it's nice that way. Um, and I think one of the reasons why they offer the free SSL service is it allows them to uh, get more visibility, right, than they would if they were only looking at the, the paying customers. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so, but the, but those services aren't so compelling that I would stick with Cloudflare. Um, I mean, I can do my own caching, um, and it's not mm -hmm. like. Um, <laughs> he said, full of hubris. Um, it's not like, you know, it's not like the DG show site has ever been like reddited or anything. Um, yes. and even so I've got yet. like, uh, yet, <laughs> so I've, I've still got a, a pretty good cat. I've got a pretty good caching system in place, um, mm -hmm. that I'm comfortable is going to take care of, you know, 98% of the problems. Um, so I don't really need the caching thing. I don't really need the early warning, you know, DDoS blocking. Um, and so uh, I think if I can make this Let's Encrypt thing work and, uh, and it doesn't, and it gets rid of the SNI certificate problem, mm -hmm. I think I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Because I, I know even for like self-signed certificates, running the OpenSSL command is just like 
you know, it's it's you have to have a PhD to know all the options on it, and, and you know, to, I know, yeah, and you there's no, do it it's so, so it's so hostile. Like that that yeah. command line interface is just why is that one why is that one thing? Like if they broke it out into the dozen commands it should be, it would be a much easier thing to follow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just yeah. crazy. Like I, 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 if I see instructions and I see the like an open SSL command line example, I just like, oh, that's it. I'm out. Like I'm not. I'm not getting yep. anywhere near that. Like I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what these certificates are for. I don't know what this. Like I'm transcoding certificates into transmogrifiers, and I, it, it's it's bewildering. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What a terrible yeah. tool. Yeah, and then and then on top of that is like once you do all that and you want to go to a. a a CA and have it sign it. That's even more yak shaving you have to do. Where, like you said, in a couple commands, you could the way this is written, um, you can get a uh, a certificate pretty darn fast. So that's that's really exciting. Yeah, if you've ever done that CA process, too, is like okay, it's 2014. Why am I pasting an ASCII certificate into somebody's text box on a web form? Like that seems like this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So good for, and so good for EFF. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I am a uh, uh, why I'm a big supporter of EFF is they do stuff like this. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, what a what a great thing to what a great problem to solve. Um, and it really takes an organization like EFF to uh, to do this kind of work, right? Nobody's going to come to it naturally. Um, there's no way to really make money doing this. Uh, so good for mm-hmm. them. Yep. Yeah. 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 And do you see the new thing with? Uh... Firefox, they're they're going away from uh, Google for being the default search. Yeah, and this was interesting to me because I was under the impression that that was where most of their money came from. Yeah, well, the well, Google, Google, you're right because Google pays Google paid them for that position, and then uh, and then they get some kind of like ad revenue kickback mm-hmm. uh, based on the Google searches you do on this on the smart bar, right? Yep, and the and so what happened, I guess, is that the contract is running out. And um, I guess it went up for bid and Yahoo won. So um, future versions of Firefox will have Yahoo as a default, which is something everybody wants, right? <laughs> It'll be interesting to see uh, how many people switch back to Google. Um, or or DuckDuckGo. Yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Speaking of devils you know, um, yeah, James Kirkland, he, he told us about... Um, I, I saw a tweet from him uh, about uh, e-cigarettes uh, from China. They're sp- spreading malware through the USB charger. So you know you have your e-cigarette, which is battery operated, and a lot of mm-hmm. times people want to uh, recharge the battery for it. So instead of plugging it into the wall, they could just it has a, uh, a USB port on it. You could plug it into the USB port of your computer, and um, these e-cigarettes will, uh, in exchange, install malware on your computer. <laughs> it's it, it is pretty amazing it's pretty amazing um really clever like how smart yeah. is that yeah like i i know I, you know i've you always heard the stories about the um I, I don't know if it's like intentionally bad guys or it's like people trying to do security tests of just driving into a parking lot and scattering a bunch of usb drives all over the place uh, of a company mm-hmm. And then see how quickly it is until somebody plugs it in and and phones back to say, hey, hey, this laptop just got compromised um, because somebody found a a cheap USB drive. So this is a more sophisticated way of of getting uh, malware through eBay. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I don't think we talk enough, or maybe we talk plenty about it, but uh, USB charging or this 
I'm seeing more and more appliances or kind of uh, gadgets like a, like an mm-hmm. e-cigarette um, that mm-hmm. just assume that there are USB ports available in someone's life. Um, yeah, you know because that's because uh, you know everyone's mobile phone charges over USB. So uh, watching how many other things start to get charged over USB is uh, pretty pretty interesting. Um, what a, what a nice handy way to solve the problem, right? Just like use an infrastructure that's already there instead of making somebody cart around like yet another transformer or you know yet another yeah. set of plugs. Well, um, also. Think about it from an internationalization standpoint where you don't need a wall mm-hmm. work for every single power outlet um, where yep. I'm sure everybody has a USB port with their own dongle that connects into a wall. And so mm-hmm. this, that's another reason that it makes products cheaper since they don't need to um, come up with a, a, a wall work for everybody. Yep, yep, exactly. Um and then, you know, what's interesting is actually on the other end of that charger, uh, there's this whole, Dave, you're, you're not an e-cigarette enthusiast uh, as I am, but the uh, um, there's a whole lock-in uh, aspect to the e-cigarette. Um, oh. So there are, if you can imagine, so on your regular e-cigarette, you've got two components, right? There's like the battery and then there's like where the juice is. Um, mm-hmm. And the connection between the battery and your cartridge or your, your reservoir or whatever um, is different for almost every model. Um, oh. and so there's some commonality between them, but, um, if you, you can't use a battery from one kind of flavor of a e-cigarette and use it on another, um, mm-hmm. it's like that stuff isn't standardized, which means, um, if you're like me and you're traveling and you lose your battery or, or your battery dies or whatever, um, you have to go find like exactly that brand in order to get the battery. And the brands are because the market is so vulcanized, the brands are actually, uh, very regional. Um, Hmm. and so I can really, the battery that I get, I can get on the West coast and I can get in kind of the South in like Texas. Um, Mm -hmm. but I find it very difficult to find my particular brand of battery on the East coast, uh, which Hmm. is, which is really interesting. So, um, there's this whole, yeah, it's interesting. This whole like lock-in aspect to the e-cigarette, um, which certainly didn't exist with real cigarettes. Um, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's sort of like, uh, Keurig or HP toner cartridges and yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's interesting. Uh, so speaking of reusing uh, an existing infrastructure, um, did you see the plan for uh, Wi-Fi in New York? Yeah, that the, they want to convert 10,000 payphones to Wi-Fi base stations that will broadcast, basically be uh, billboard ads too. Yeah, 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 exactly, which I think is really smart. Um, I was reading somewhere that the, the quality of broadband in New York uh, is uh, some of, you know, it's like some of the most expensive in the world, um, but mm-hmm. the quality is like right, right around Romania is like wow. the level of, uh, yeah, is the quality of, inter- of connectivity, which is certainly true when I was living there. And uh, so it's re- I think it's great that the city is, uh, is offering this, uh, this service. Um, I think it's great. Uh, so two footnotes to that is, first of all, can you imagine the surveillance possibilities? Yes. Yeah. Well, especially just, if it's government just, run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Even just checking, even just, even, even just to watch Wi-Fi beacons, right? Um, like yep. trace somebody's, uh, trace somebody's e- Ethernet address um, as mm-hmm. it travels from one station to another. That's pretty sweet if you're a government um, or mm-hmm. the NYPD. Um, mm-hmm. The other part of it was... Uh, was that they actually, this is all out on contract. Um, so it's actually, mm-hmm. I think, Qualcomm, uh, who's, mm-hmm. uh, who's building the, the Wi-Fi stations. Um, but I wonder, you know, who's upset about this, obviously, is going to be like Time Warner. 
um, yes. and Comcast, like the broadband providers. Um, yeah. And I know that they've, there's been a concerted effort by the broadband providers to prevent cities from doing stuff like this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they will argue with the city council that this, you know, is snuffing out innovation and preventing the market from working as it should, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, obviously New York told them all to go pound sand. They're going to build their own broadband infrastructure, which I think is great and probably exactly what a city should do. Well, and the other thing that, as you were talking about it, it reminds me of, uh, remember how a lot of like, say like in Africa, you have these villages where it doesn't make sense to run telephone cable and, and, you know, so people just put up either a Wi-Fi beacon or a cell tower. Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, I wonder if New York city is very similar if you think about it in a, in a different way where, New York City is so congested, and to run a cable to every person's apartment, um, and how efficient that is, maybe that's why yeah. the performance is so bad, just because of just capacity and everything. And if you could just make it wireless, um, you you take away the physical cabling, and, and you might be able to beef things up that way and have more beacons. Yeah, so the, um, that's interesting you say that. I happen to know a little bit about the uh, New York City infrastructure. And uh, back when I was living there, there was a company called Ricochet. Do you remember them? Mm -hmm. No. They had a really clever idea, which was uh, a set of, it was a networking equipment that you could mount on a lamppost. And uh, it was kind of, this is before Wi-Fi was really widespread, so it was their own kind of proprietary radio within it. Mm -hmm. um, but you could give somebody a Ricochet receiver, and then uh, the Ricochet system was great because you didn't have it all out at time. Uh, what you mm -hmm. did is you became a Ricochet subscriber, and then based on where the subscribers were clustered, they would mount these like $200 transmitters on, uh, on a lamppost. Uh, and so the idea was that you could like roll out a broadband, a wireless broadband infrastructure incrementally, um, instead mm -hmm. of having to like, you know, the thunk and, you know, do it all at once. Um, really clever, like really, really smart idea. And it was meant to do exactly that, like do an end run, uh, around this, around the limitations of, uh, uh, the kind of wired, you know, underground infrastructure. Um, unfortunately it never took off and I think they just went bankrupt, um, in the end. Uh, um, yeah. But, maybe uh, Wi-Fi came out and just yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but it's still like a really interesting idea. And in fact, I'm, I'm actually, I should say, I'm, I'm, an, ad, I'm an advisor to, uh, to an organization um, that is uh, doing exactly that. Like uh, there's an open source project called Commotion, um, which is some open source software uh, that allows you to basically build kind of a ricochet system um, in your own city. Um, so uh, pretty great. So um, as far as lock-in, the uh, cable providers uh, aren't the only ones that uh, we're going to talk about this week in terms of lock-in, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> it will not surprise it will not surprise anyone to learn that Apple is also interested in lock-in. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, um, but they found it. They found a really clever new way of locking you in, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So um, the one thing that came up is. Um, Apple has disabled trim support on third-party SSDs in OS X. Um, so that that is a mouthful of acronyms and, and things like that. So let me let me unpack it. Um, so you you have a solid-state drive SSD. Um, so instead of a spinning disk, it's it's memory that gets written to. And there's a, a technique called uh, trim, which allows you to um, the the disk drive can smartly deallocate things and no longer use them and keep the uh, to help keep the performance up and and help with wear leveling, um, and so 
what Apple has done is that for their the new version of OS 10 that's I don't know if it's out or I guess 10 10.10 Yosemite. Um, yep, it's out. Yep. Yep. So the thing that they're doing now is uh, driver signing, which um, makes a lot of sense from a security standpoint, right? You don't want to mm-hmm. install random drivers and um, and have them, uh, you know, have malware and all that. You know, you want to get all your drivers from the company store um, or the app store. Um, but but from from Apple that have been signed. But if you have a device that does not have a signed driver for it, um, that driver will not load, and it will revert back to like a, a legacy driver that doesn't have the trim support in it. So what what happened was um, there were some tests that were done in 2010, 2011 that um, did some testing uh, without trim on it, and they saw a 30 to 50 percent uh, performance degradation. Um, and so, um, so I thought that was interesting as far as you know, it's it's. A good thing that they're signing drivers, and and it's also all or nothing. Um, you can't um, make an exception. Like you can't say, "Oh, I only want to do sign drivers for everything," and then I, as an end user, can whitelist particular drivers to um, be okay and and say I'll, I'll say that it's okay to run them. Um, it's mm-hmm. uh, Apple says, well, it has to be all or nothing. So I wonder if this is specific to uh, drives that are installed internally to the machine uh, or whether this also affects external hard drives like if i plugged in over usb or or firewire or whatever whatever the interface is um because i can imagine i can't imagine apple crippling like people use external drives on these things all the time right um Mm -hmm. some of them even made by apple so uh, i can't imagine lacie being comfortable with apple basically crippling their whole product line um or or they pay apple for the privilege of having their drivers signed yeah. and bundled into OS 10, which is yeah. t- could be a revenue stream for Apple. I'm sure they thought of that too. Yeah, yeah. Of, Although, you know, uh, having an Apple certified, uh, you know, just like they do with their power cords and all that other stuff. Right, right. Well, I wonder. I mean, Microsoft did the same thing uh, a few years back uh, with their driver signing. Right, you have to be like mm-hmm. in the Microsoft development program in order to get your driver signed. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Well, you know, well it, this could, yeah, this is this is like this is an ongoing argument in the Linux community about driver signing, um, yes. and whether that should ever be, you know, something that we rely on. Um, there are a lot of people who use Linux who do want driver signing because they want to make sure they don't get, you know, some kind of hinky, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hinky driver for a USB e-cigarette chargers, right? Um, yes. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, driver signing necessarily means handing over the keys to your system to someone else who may not have your best interests uh, yep. at heart. Well, what's what's funny is you bring up Microsoft, and and with Microsoft, they weren't the ones that would do all the signing. Um, that they, they would actually delegate signing keys to particular uh, hardware vendors to allow them to sign their own software with the Microsoft keys. And I forget there was a, a Taiwanese uh, vendor. I forget the name of it, but um, they uh, their signing key got leaked, and then that allowed to have all kind of malicious um, software being able to be installed on Microsoft systems, even though they were approved signed drivers approved by Microsoft. Right, right. And then Microsoft had to, didn't they have to issue a patch uh, or a, like a security fix, which uh, removed that 
certificate from the Windows machine. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, it was yeah, uh, Realtek. I think it was. Was it Realtek? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, mm-hmm. it might be. Yeah, it sounds right. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, it, and it's the same problem as uh, when a certificate authority gets compromised, which has happened in the past, right? Yep. Uh, and so now suddenly everybody who's got that CA, you know, like Joe Schmo's certificate authority, um, you know, there's probably like, there's probably a number of dozen of CAs in every browser that just like ship automatically with the browser, right? The postal service has got one, um, mm-hmm. VeriSign has got a couple. Um, and if one of those gets compromised, now suddenly they can verify, you know, somebody malicious can verify whatever website they want and pretend like mm-hmm. the identity is whatever they want. Um, pretty, uh, pretty scary. Yeah. When you hand over, I mean, whenever you delegate trust uh, to somebody, um, it's sometimes difficult to know what all the consequences are going to be. Yep. Yep, totally. Um, but, but Apple's which, not the okay. only one we're going to talk about for a lock-in, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, yeah, so I had a conversation uh, actually at work uh, this week, and I wanted to air it out with you too, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, wait a minute. You were in the conversation. So no, I guess this is a recap of the conversation we had. On the, uh, okay. Um, so, so, the, so in the conversation, we were talking about Amazon, right? EC2, this wildly successful cloud service. And uh, people often mention EC2, and they talk about the danger of lock-in with EC2. Um, mm-hmm. And the counter-argument to that is frequently Adrian Cocroft, who's like a big you know, Amazon fanboy who's at Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. He says, why are you worried about lock-in when the price is decreasing consistently you know, every quarter? Uh, which is true, right? Amazon is lowering lowering cost, uh, yep. and uh, you know, at a at a fairly quick clip. Um, mm-hmm. So why would I be worried about? So why why am I worried about lock in if the price is continually going down? It's not they're not squeezing me on the price. They're not raising the price. So what's the what's the concern? Um, which had me stumped for a while. I was like, oh yeah, well, that's that's actually true. I wonder if the economics are a little bit different. It's not like they're acting like a monopolist, right? If the price is going down, uh, but then I realized that the lock in. Um, isn't about the cost of the service. The lock-in is about uh, making it easy to move to other services, right? It's it's option mm-hmm. value, um, not the value you're getting out of the service itself. Um, so mm-hmm. as an example, Apple, right, is locking people into the Apple platform and making it as expensive as possible to move elsewhere. Uh, regardless mm-hmm. of the quality of the service or how much you enjoy it, you don't have a choice. Um, mm-hmm. And so as an example, if I wanted to go, you, if I've built up an infrastructure for my startup that relies on a bunch of Amazon services like RDS and uh, Lambda and, you know, all these other kind of exotic Amazon specific things, um, it's going to be very difficult for me to retool and go move to Google, Google Compute Engine if like, if for instance, I wanted to start experimenting with containers and Kubernetes. Um, mm-hmm. And so anyway, I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. So lock-in isn't about being shaken down by by the company you're working with. Um, it's actually mm-hmm. about your inability to have any other options, right? If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, another way, another angle to look at it is, um, the lowering of the prices that with Amazon and, and it's, I'm sure a lot of those Amazon price drops are in response to Google and Microsoft lowering their prices. And, and, you know, the, mm-hmm. it's a race to the bottom in terms of pricing, mm-hmm. but that, turns it into, um, uh, ironically, a, a an oligarchy, right? Um, where it's for somebody to wake up and say, "Oh, I want to. I'm going to make my own cloud, and I'm going to compete against um, uh, compete against Amazon or Google Compute Engine or something like that." You you probably don't have deep enough pockets to have the economies of scale that that they have, and and eventually you're going to reach a point where it's like, well. 
um, you know, you only have a couple choices as far as uh, who your vendors are, sort of like your, your uh, cell phone providers. There's another aspect to lock in as well. It's not just about option value and it's not about being shaken down. It's also about being at the mercy of someone else's roadmap, right? So when yes. Amazon decides to, if I've invested heavily in the Amazon Lambda service and Amazon decides that Lambda isn't profitable to operate any longer, um, then I am in serious trouble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so this happened with uh, Netflix recently, right? You found this. Yep. Yeah. So we talked about this in the past about them uh, killing off their their public API, um, and and they did that. I. Uh, a while ago, uh, and you know, like they didn't let any new entrants in, and then they kept uh, a couple of the people that did have apps uh, that were prominent, let them have access to the API um, until just recently, and they just uh, uh, shut that down, and now everybody is out, which is sad because I, I you can imagine all the cool things that, like, if you had that Netflix data, um, I, I don't know why Netflix doesn't want to have that API available because you could do so many cool things with it and make Netflix so much more valuable. Yeah, I wonder. And it's not like it was an API to manipulate the video streams. It was really just about like the metadata in their catalog, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, and yes. yeah, yeah. So I could imagine that, you know, the you could do some really cool uh, like front ends for it. Like I pay it for the Netflix subscription, not for the user interface, which is like, okay. Um, I I'm paying for the content that's, that's what I enjoy out of it. Um, and maybe they, they do that. So they prevent competitors to go in and, you know, you could imagine from a competitive intelligence standpoint, being able to do API queries against everything. Um, maybe Hulu or, or the cable companies could analyze that and figure out something, uh, to figure out, or Amazon would be another one. Uh, to figure out how to uh, you know pick which videos to to put in their catalog. Yeah, yeah, but I mean that's what API keys are for, right? Make them register for an API key, and then you can trace how people are using it, and if people abuse the system, or you can put up gates where you can only do so many yep. queries on a on a fair or whatever. Um, yeah, it just seems. Although, although on the other hand, like maybe. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I can't think of very many tools that were actually using that API that I was aware mm -hmm. of. Um, mm -hmm. So it might just be they turned it off because people weren't using it and it cost them too much to maintain. It was probably easier just to shut it off. Yeah. I, I in the one article, it, they were talking about how the API would change a lot and, and it wasn't very good. Um, and people were hoping that it would be like, oh, well, they're getting rid of it to come out with an awesome API. Um, but they just turned it off without replacing it with anything else. Right, right. So, but you know, in the, this hypothetical open source developer whose livelihood was tied to the Netflix API, mm -hmm. he's in trouble, right? Um, yep. he's, he's got he's got nowhere to go. So, I think this hypothetical developer should probably go ahead and sue somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, a great way to do that. Hmm. What's that? Lectures. Lec lectures. Yes. Lex yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like a condition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need a vaccination for it. Um, yeah, I saw, I saw this, you know, with the whole popularity of Kickstarter to fund startups, it reminds me a lot of a, like a Kickstarter, but for lawsuits. So, um, so basically, uh, they connect accredited investors with plaintiffs uh, in commercial lawsuits to make an invest, uh, to make an equity investment in a specific case. So, like, if, if you have um, people that want to sue, 
name your company, Netflix in this example, um, for whatever reason, um, people could throw money in and say that, oh yeah, I went in on that. So if they, they get some, so they could actually buy shares um, and and help fund the, the the legal team that is going after whatever the, the particular uh, uh, company is. And if the plaintiff wins, um, they get part of the proceeds proportional to their investment in that um, in that lawsuit. Okay. All right. I I'm already feeling my spider sense for ethical conundrums is is tingling. I feel like I can't articulate it quite yet, but it mm -hmm. seems like there would be some kind of conflict of interest there, or uh, some kind of bad bundle of incentives, something like that. Yes. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and, uh, you know, does that help, you know, does, do you have the wisdom of crowds helping you? Does it help or does it hurt? And, you know, obviously the people that put it together say that it would minimize frivolous lawsuits. I, I don't know, unless people look at it as like buying a lottery ticket, um, uh, you know, for a particular, oh, we're going after whatever. Um, and would that also, like, I don't know if that would make the legal system better or worse uh or would that create uh, um an incentive for uh to pay more lawyers to go around suing people and yeah. and do we need that well and i think this claim that it eliminates frivolous lawsuits is disingenuous right that assumes that all lawsuits are conducted through this platform um and yeah. if the way that people communicate demand is or yeah the way that people communicate their demand is through handing over money uh then just like a federal election um then you are. Then that is the only way someone can express themselves. Uh, meaning that only the rich people, or rather, that the richer the person is, uh, the more influence they have over which which lawsuits get placed. Right. So it doesn't see. This doesn't seem like a. Uh, this seems regressive. I guess is the best way to describe that. It would be regressive mm -hmm. in the same way that a, reg a regressive tax uh, would uh, would favor the wealthy. This seems like. Uh, this seems like a platform that would favor lawsuits that wealthy people are interested in rather than lawsuits that say you or I would be interested in. Well, actually, um, it's, it's the opposite of that. So the article says that in the past, they used to only do this for select fat cats, like mm -hmm. your Warren Buffett or whoever, they could mm -hmm. throw money in and then they would get the payout. But now this is more, so very much like the VC way of doing things of, mm -hmm. of, um, having a small number of venture capitalists with a lot of money to throw around, this is a way for the little guy to get in on the legal action and they could throw a couple bucks um, and then get a return on that uh, quote unquote investment. I see. I see. Okay. So the, so if I had a bunch of money and I wanted to kind of move the needle, uh, I could still do that uh, with under this like system. Um, but it also, kind of lowers the bar for a hundred people with similar interests and five bucks each. Uh, yep. okay. Okay. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Very much like Kickstarter, uh, mm -hmm. compared to venture capital. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. But with that, I would love to, for all the, the lawyers, uh, that listen to our podcast, I'd love their feedback on this, what, what their take is. Yeah. Cause it doesn't smell right. Does it? I don't know. I don't know. It, it sounds democratizing, but, mm -hmm. Do we need more I just, lawsuits? I don't know. Yeah. I guess, I guess when we mention money and lawyers and lawsuits all in the same sentence, I immediately my hackles go up and I start thinking yeah. that like I'm on the that I'm gonna be on the business end of this. 
Um, yeah. So, you yeah. Know. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you look at like, uh, you know, late night television ads of, of the ambulance chasers. Um, you know, this, I can imagine this being almost like an ambulance chaser sort of thing where it, you, instead of the person that slips and falls and they, they want to get a big payout, maybe this is like another way to, um, you know, that, that negative stereotype of, of lawyers to, uh, possibly take advantage of people or I don't know what yeah it's almost like uh well it's 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 populist in all the best mm-hmm. and worst sense of that word right um, exactly if you've got if you've got somebody who can influence a bunch of people to uh you know appealing to their to their darker natures maybe um mm-hmm. and convincing them to invest in a lawsuit that would otherwise not have any merit um I can see how this could be perverted um mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's one that's one way of exploiting it yeah yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and then also you think about the we've had well over a hundred years of like um, Security Exchange Commission and regulation from a financial services standpoint, but this is like super not regulated either. And how do you, you know, how do you convince somebody that like that this is a this is a good lawsuit to invest in? This is a bad one, and what is the ROI? And I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure that yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm I'm sure that there is somebody at the FTC who is delighted to be digging into this and figuring out whether this needs to be somebody needs to be licensed or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I could see I could see this being a a real mess. Yep. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um. So Dave, I'm going. I'm I'm breaking my streak of not traveling. Um. And I'm gonna yeah. be back in. I'm gonna be back in D.C. on uh, December third. Um, hmm. I will be at the I'll be at the Willard which is a, a venue that we're starting to enjoy at Red Hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to hold more events at the Willard, uh, which is a very fancy hotel uh, in mm-hmm. downtown D.C. Um, so I'll be, I'll be on stage with some folks from NIST uh, mm-hmm. and some folks from GSA. Uh, mm-hmm. And the title is great. The title is The Watchful Eye, Mitigating Risk in the Cloud. Yeah. It's, so are you for The Watchful Eye or against The Watchful Eye? I, <laughs> the Watchful Eye, because it is everywhere, <laughs> knows that I am a huge fan of the watchful eye and I for yes. one welcome the watchful eyes uh loving and patrician gaze on everything mm. that I do mm-hmm. nice yeah I was thinking about opening with like a an Illuminati reference maybe kick yeah. the panel off that way yeah the or the picture of the dollar bill thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah uh, and then on, on December 11th, so that's December 3rd, and then on December 11th, also in D.C., uh, we're doing a, a private PaaS workshop, which, I'm, yep. which I'm, I will not be attending, but I'm excited that we're doing it. Um, yeah. So this is going to be kind of a, this is like a hands-on thing, right, with like nerds in the room? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. We've got a, a couple of our uh, JBoss essays in the room uh, driving this, showing people how to use uh, OpenShift Enterprise. It's all hands-on and uh, super nerdy, technical, a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So that's December 11th and a link to that in the show notes, of course. Um, and also public service announcement, the Red Hat Summit. Yes, it's already, the call for papers is already open. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you've got a great Red Hat story, uh, if you've got uh, some great success or something you're really proud of that you did uh, using some of our bits, uh, you should definitely submit a paper. And uh, Dave, you're on the review committee once again this year, are you not? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Looking forward to that going to have lots of <laughs> no, submissions <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and yeah mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I remember every year you like disappear for a month and you just kind of <laughs> like you're just buried under under these uh, paper reviews. Yeah. Yeah, I go all Howard Hughes and yeah, review papers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So if you would like Dave to be reading your proposal while collecting his own urine in a jar, uh, please submit to the <laughs> <laughs> please yeah. submit to the uh, the Red Dead Summit call for papers. Um, all right, moving very quickly away from that uh, image. Yes. Um, so Dave, you've been you've been playing with Nessus lately, right? The Nessus uh, security scanning tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, really nice because it integrates with uh, satellite, and you know, typically people have been. Um, Enjoying that because it's part of ACAS uh, for our, our DoD friends, um, and and they've been using that. And we've co-presented with Nessus or with Tenable, the the company that makes Nessus, at the Red Hat Summit. Lee Kinzer and uh, you know we uh, uh, presented co-presented with them, showing them how you could use Nessus to talk directly to a satellite server uh, using the satellite API to query the database to see which systems are out of date and all that. So it's it's pretty cool. But I just found out that there's um, a new plugin that came out that uh, allows you to, to use Nessus uh, to scan your Rev infrastructure, Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization. So I was, I was really pleased to see that. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, yep. Lovely. Uh, oh, speaking of security, uh, our good friend uh, Rich Lucente, um, mm-hmm. one of our one of our middleware architects, uh, went ahead and whipped up a uh, FIPS compliant password vault uh, for mm-hmm. JBoss. Uh, and Rel, yep. for that matter. Yep. Um, quick little, quick little script, quick little thing he did up, uh, but really, really handy, um, and something that a lot of customers need to, uh, something a lot of customers need uh, to uh, keep all their passwords uh, secure and in one place, and uh, in a way that's uh, compliant with the uh, federal information processing standard. Yeah. So he he. Uh, so what he put the binary out there, and and you could buy a license for it, and it's all closed source, locked down. Nobody can get to it. So I, well, I'm I'm sure he'd be happy to take your money, but uh, but uh, he's undone himself. Uh, he's not mm-hmm. a very good marketer. This guy. Uh, he went ahead and made the made the code free up on uh, I think it's up on GitHub. Yep. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see. Oh, speaking of proprietary and lockdown, um, I was just made aware of this project, Dave. I don't know if you've I don't know if you'd heard of it before. Dav mail, D A V mail. No, I I know about d- Dav. In general, like card mm-hmm. dev and web dev, mm-hmm. is that is that similar? Yeah. And Cal dev, yep, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. this is a uh, see, it seems like a proxy that uh, will talk uh, card dev, Cal dev, etc. So in other words, like using the open standards for handling contact calendars, you know, all that like personal productivity stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It does that. It talks that on one side, and then on the back end, it talks to uh, it talks to Exchange. Hmm. So, which is, I mean, I worked in exchange shops before and this was like the holy grail. Like, this is the thing I had been looking for, right? Like, um, it gets, gets real annoying, uh, to be using a Linux system and having to use like the crappy version of, uh, Outlook, um, web access, you know, that, uh, and that kind of stuff. But you can get around this apparently with a uh, dav mail. Um, it takes care mm-hmm. of all the, uh, the dirty details underneath and, uh, presents to you, um, a, what, as far as your clients are concerned is a fully standards compliant, uh, mail calendar contacts. Um, so I, I thought it was really cool. Dav mail. Yeah. Great. Great. Oh, I haven't a, used, Oh, go ahead. I was going to, and a fun little side note is, uh, the development of a portion of Dav mail was actually funded by the uh, French, uh, MOD. Hmm. So nice. if you enjoy, uh, if you enjoy French open source software, uh, you will definitely enjoy Dav mail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where we got the, uh, 
circus code from France, um, but not not from their Ministry of Defense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's cool. And I haven't used Exchange for since I got to Red Hat. Um, I, I'm curious as to, I wonder if the web Outlook uh, client is better now, given that the, the popularity of, of Gmail and all that. Um, yeah. I would I, think it would be better. I don't know. It would, it would, I mean, it has to be, right? It's got to be. Yeah. Um, oh, it was horrible. Yeah. It was terrible. Well, and, and especially now that Microsoft's new policy of openness, right? You know, the open source.net and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they've allowed their their apps to be a they've allowed their apps to be run on you know Android and iOS and things like that. So they've suddenly gotten very ecumenical. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I have to imagine that um, that at least the web access has improved. Um, yeah. But uh, and maybe someday they will make CalDAV or this uh, DAV mail irrelevant um, by uh, supporting all these standards in the first place, which is what they should have been doing. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure, it would be nice. All right, nice little note to uh, step out on. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So, Gunnar, if people want to uh, uh, see the, uh, um, the the parakeet that sounds like R2-D2 and, and uh, see the, the night highway in one kilobyte of JavaScript, mm-hmm. where do we need to send them? Yeah, they should go to uh, the Dave and Gunnar Show website, which is at uh, dgshow.org. Uh, so that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunnar, show.org. Great. Great. Well, well, thanks, Gunnar, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks, everyone.